0: Good morning. Can you hear me all right? Oh, good. All right. Well, Christ is risen. I love to hear that level of enthusiasm on the fifth Sunday of Pascha, because we're we're pretty well and truly into it by now, and so some of the original kind of luster is worn off. That that adrenaline rush of the first Sunday, you know, has maybe died down a bit. But to hear that enthusiasm, we're still in the feast. That's glorious. Thank God. Um, sorry, my voice is out a little bit. Uh, this is not sickness. This was uh, Richmond uh, just dominating at the at the MCG last night, and thank God for that too. Um, unless you're an Essendon fan, in which case I'm very sorry, Subdeacon Tim. Um, I want to talk about the gospel today. It's a well, it's the gospel of John. So to say that it's a rich reading is true of every passage in that book. There is a reason that the early fathers said that after Matthew and Mark and Luke had composed their Gospels, John came around and wrote a more spiritual Gospel, something richer and deeper, a reflection on the meanings so often hidden in the events of the other Gospels, played out in the characters and events of John's Gospel. And... It's with good reason that every Sunday in Pascha, uh, we have a reading from the Gospel of John. So we start with the prologue at the Paschal liturgy. Right in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh. We have seen His glory. Right, we have that reading. The first Sunday after that is the Sunday of Thomas. Right, not going to believe till I put my hands in the wounds and in His side. After that, we have the myrrh-bearing women who come to the tomb when everyone else is afraid. They come and they are there to give Jesus the burial they feel he deserves only to find that he's not dead, that he has risen. Then we have the Sunday of the paralytic, whom Jesus heals after 38 years of waiting. Today, the Samaritan woman, and next Sunday, of course, the man blind from birth six phenomenal readings that take us deep into the church's theology, that take us deep into what Pascha is about and what we are called not only to learn, but what we are called to be. And of those Sundays, this one is my favorite, so I feel very fortunate to be talking with you today about the Sumerian woman, the woman at the well, Saint Fotini, the enlightened woman. Now, of course, in John's Gospel, she's not named. The name is given to us by later tradition. Uh, She's just a woman of Samaria. And I want to go through the dialogue that she has with Jesus in this passage, because it is so rich. And then I want to break it into two halves, because the dialogue takes place in two parts. The first part is about living water, and I want to think about what that really means. And then the second half is... A moment of self-revelation, first of her and then of Jesus, and I want to think about what that means. And then after they talk, we get a section where Jesus' disciples show back up and act like idiots, which they do frequently in the Gospel of John, and I want to think about that too. So it's going to be kind of in three parts with a little bit of a setup at the beginning, but um, hopefully it'll be worth it, and bear with me. So let's set up the story first. How does Jesus come to be chatting with a Sumerian woman? Samaritan, Samarian—it makes no difference. It, she's a person who lives in the region of Samaria. Now, if you imagine the little sliver of land that is what we might call Israel, um, it's divided. Up at the far north, you have the region of Galilee, like the Lake of Galilee, or the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Gennesaret, right? You know, up there at the north, and then the River Jordan flows directly south, and. Uh, Before it gets to the Dead Sea at the bottom, you have Jerusalem kind of midway down. So that main region down here, this is Jerusalem. I wish I had a map. I should have a map. But you can imagine. It's not a complicated place. You've got Judea. So in the Gospel of John, when it says Jews, almost inevitably what it means is people who live in Judea. Because there are Jews who don't live in Judea. But they're not called Jews in John's Gospel. He tends to reserve this term for Judeans. People who live around Jerusalem. People from Galilee are also Jews, but they don't live in Judea. They're separated from Judea by this other place called Samaria. And Samaria is the territory of what was once the northern kingdom of Israel. Way back in the day, we're talking King Saul, King David, King Solomon, and then after them it splits, right, into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judea. Now, Samaria was, the people of Samaria were, part of that northern kingdom, but it was conquered long, long before all of this in 722 by the Assyrians, who pretty much torched the place and tried to decimate the population. Now, Judea persisted on, was eventually captured by the Babylonians, and then came back, and the temple was rebuilt. Things kind of continue on in Judea, down south, in a way that they don't in Samaria. The Samarians have the law, the Pentateuch, the Torah, a version of it, but they don't have the books of the prophets. They don't have the later wisdom writings. They don't have so much of what we would call the Old Testament or which uh, the people in Judea would just call the Bible, right? They are living a somewhat different religious life. Now, you can tell how different this is when we hear that Jews don't have relations with Samarians. They don't talk to each other. In Josephus, the historian Josephus, we find they do sometimes talk to each other, but usually they talk with their fists. They do not get along. These are people separated by a common ancestry, and that's the problem. See, Jacob, the patriarch Jacob, who dug this well and gave it, is shared by Sumerians and by Judeans. They both claim him as their forefather, but yet they're separate peoples, and they don't get on with each other. And so, in a sense, we're in a setting for a dialogue that should never be taking place, because Jesus, as a good Jew, even though from Galilee, he's a Judean-type Jew, he is not going to talk with Sumerian people. And in the other Gospels, we find that when he goes through Samaria, they don't get on with him. Uh, In Luke uh, chapter 9, I think, they they kick him out. And he's like, all right, fine, I'll just keep going. But here, he's sitting there. It's midday, the sixth hour. And he's tired. He's trying to get to Jerusalem from uh, Galilee. Or vice versa. He's trying to get to Galilee from Jerusalem. And out comes this woman to draw water. Now, you've probably heard this preached on before, so you know people don't draw water at noon. It's too hot. It's miserable. You draw water from the well first thing in the morning. That's when the women go out to get the water. Why is she out at noon? Well, because she's not there with the other women. Because the other women don't like her. Because she is excluded. And we're going to find out why, aren't we? Because, oh dear, oh dear, she's living in sin. So this woman living a life not up to the standards of the community of a different religious community that Jesus is supposed to be hostile to, shows up and Jesus looks at her and goes, I'd like a drink. And she's just like, I'm sorry, wait, what now? No, you don't talk to me. This isn't supposed to happen. He's like, "Yeah, yeah, 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 fine. Drink, please. See, This is a dialogue initiated by Jesus who persists in breaking the rules and subverting the expectations of how he's supposed to behave. And he sets up the possibility for an encounter with someone that we would not expect him ever to meet, that by all rights he should not meet. And their dialogue is going to take us deeper into the mystery of Christ and of our faith than his disciples are capable of understanding at this point. So I want to set it up. It's not supposed to be happening. Everything's wrong with this. Are we good on that so far? It's all, yep, all right, good. So what do they talk about when this stranger shows up and asks the woman he's not supposed to talk with to give him a drink? And she's just like, why are you talking to me? (coughs) Look, if you knew the gift of God and who you're talking with, in the words of the Godfather, you you didn't know who you were with. Right? If you knew those things, you wouldn't give me a drink. You'd ask me for a drink. You would realize that everything is flipped around. Because what he wants to offer her is not a drink from the well. And it quickly becomes clear as she, consists, as she persists in talking with him that he isn't talking about the well water. That this thing to drink, that this water he's talking about is something else. It's something greater than Jacob. <laughs> The patriarch shared by Jews and Samaritans. It's something greater than anything she could imagine. Because when Jesus is talking about water, this well that they're sitting next to isn't just about physical water. I mean, it is. The problem is that when you drink water, you get thirsty again. We all get that. It doesn't really save you from the fact that you're going to die. I talk about this a lot. You've heard me say it before. We're going to die. Nothing we can do changes that. Drinking water, it doesn't matter how hydrated you are, you die. It's just how it goes. So you can go to the well every day and persist in living for a while, but it won't last. And on one level, Jesus is saying that. He's saying the water in this well isn't going to make you live eternally. It'll prolong your life a but not enough. But in another way, this well stands for so much more than just physical subsistence. It stands for the traditions, the beliefs, the values, the identity, and the exclusions of her religious community. This is Jacob's well that he gave to us, the Sumerians, not to you. As we're going to hear later, as the Jews will say, well, you have to worship in Jerusalem where we are, not there where you are. Right? this is standing in for the ways in which the community has identified itself and excluded others from it. And Jesus says, none of that is going to be good enough. Everything you've been handed down, everything you've got, all those traditions, it's not enough. Oh, it may be helpful in the same way that water is helpful in prolonging our life, but it's not enough because what he is offering is fundamentally not about those things. What he is offering is this thing called living water, which if we look a little further through the Gospel of John, we find is him. That John loves imagery of water, of bread, that Jesus is the living water, that he is the bread that came down from heaven. He is the source of sustenance. That as he has life in himself, he says in 10 that the Father has life in himself, and he gives to the Son to have life in himself, and so the Son gives life to those who believe in him. That Jesus passes on his way of living, his mode of existence, which is beyond ours, to us. That the living water is about receiving something infinitely beyond what we could ever expect. But that it is received by knowing The gift of God and whom we are speaking with. Well, according to John 3, the gift of God is his only begotten son. In what is probably the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We've all heard this, read it, seen it put up on signs at ball games probably. It is the summation of the gospel. If you knew the gift of God, which is to say if you knew the only begotten son, and who you were speaking with, because I am him, then you would ask me for what I can give you, a new kind of life that isn't that isn't going to run dry, that isn't limited, that isn't exclusionary in these ways, that isn't Sumerian or Jewish. It's for all. And so she says, well, gosh, that sounds great. I would like that living water. This is already an indication that this unnamed woman is miles ahead of so many other people in the gospel who, when encountering Jesus, go, they don't understand it, or they completely misunderstand, or they, or they, they, they don't want it. I think of Nicodemus, the, the Pharisee, who ought to know better when Jesus says, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. And, and Nicodemus goes, oh, yeah, I get it. you got to get back in the uterus. And Jesus is like, what? No, no one ever? No. That's obviously not what I meant. Nicodemus goes, oh, sorry. Right? The people who should get it don't get it. The high priest is like, well, it's better that somebody die for the nation, so we should kill him. And it's like, well, that is true. It's better that someone die for the nation but that Jesus may give life. He didn't understand it. Or when Thomas says, well, let's go with him. We can die too. And Jesus is like, no, that's not what we're going to, we're going to go raise Lazarus, man. The people who ought to get it never get it in John. It's one of the most fun things in it. The people who ought to understand are consistently confused at best. Whereas this unnamed woman, who by all accounts shouldn't get anything, she is failing by every standard, within a few verses she's gone from, whoa, why are you talking with me, to I would like that living water, that sounds good, thank you, yes please, I'll take three. She seems to be understanding things, and if we want confirmation of that, we go to the second half of the dialogue, where Jesus starts a new conversation. He's very, he's very pushy in this, right, give me a drink, bring your husband, and she goes, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus goes, yeah, I know. You've had four. And you're living with someone now who's not your husband. And then proceeds to continue talking with her. Like, he knows this is a problem, but it doesn't stop him. And more to the point, it draws from her a moment of self-revelation. She reveals herself, and he reveals himself. She says, oh, okay. Yeah, that's true. She doesn't deny it and go, no, 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 no. I'm happily married. Everything's great. She goes, you're a prophet. You know what's up. Later she'll tell people in the city, he told me everything I ever did. Not the nice stuff either. But that told me who he was. That she is able to perceive Jesus because of her brokenness. That she is able to be honest about who she is and therefore understand who he is. Again, in a way that in John's gospel, and frequently in life, people who think they get it, who think they're right, who think they know what's up, and that they're following the rules, they don't get it. So she says, I can see you're a prophet. I'd like to understand a question. The Jews say we have to be in Jerusalem. We worship on this mountain. Fun fact, there was a second temple uh, on a mountain near Shiloh in Samaria, where Samarians worshipped the temple in Jerusalem is the main temple, but there was, there was another one as well, uh, long destroyed, just ruins now. Um, where do we do it? And Jesus goes, well, neither. Because once again, what I'm offering you is not limited to this or that tradition. It's not that the Sumerians are right and the Judeans wrong, or the Judeans are right and the Sumerians are wrong. No, you're all effectively wrong, because guess what? It's not about this place or that place, or this little community, or that little community, or this piece of land, or that piece of land. It's about the God who is to be worshiped in spirit and truth. That God is spirit. He's not in a place like that. He is beyond these categories. And indeed, the Father wants worshipers who approach him in spirit and in truth, but the spirit we find elsewhere is the Holy Spirit, and Christ is the revealer of truth, and indeed is the truth in John fourteen six. What Jesus is saying here subtly is what God wants is you to worship the Trinity, the Father through the Holy Spirit and the Son. <clears throat> he doesn't come out and say it in those words, but the Trinity is present. The Sumerian woman is encountering Christ and through Christ, the triune God. And she is on board. She says, well, we are waiting for the Christ. And he goes, that's me. And again, instead of saying, are you sure? Or I don't believe you? Or the Christ couldn't come from Nazareth? Or this guy is a sinner? Or any of the responses that we hear throughout the gospel from other people who ought to know better, she goes back to the city and says, he told me everything I ever did. Could he be the one? She becomes an apostle. Immediately, she sees Christ more deeply and responds more quickly than one could have thought possible. And so in this gospel today, we have an encounter between the sinner and the Lord. And it is an encounter which transforms her and reveals him. And it is an encounter which I suspect should be a model for us because it is one which reminds us that if we allow orthodoxy to be reduced to uh, a set of moral rules or the kind of shibboleths and passcodes of who's in and who's out and who does things the right way or crosses themselves the right way, we, we are missing the point. All of these things can be good and helpful, and we should have our principles. We should have our practices. We should have all the ways in which we remain tethered to our faith. But we have to remember our faith is about an encounter with the infinite God and is therefore richer and deeper than anything we could describe, explain, categorize, or set down. It is always going to be a moment like this, initiated not by us but by our Lord who comes to us when we couldn't come to him, who says, give me a drink when we have nothing to offer, who says, reveal yourself, show me who you really are when we would like to hide that, and who in turn shows himself to us and in turn offers himself to us. It is for the Sumerian woman an encounter in advance with the risen Lord, The Lord whose hour is coming and now is. When this worship that is revealed is made, no, no, let me rephrase that. When the worship that he is describing will be revealed, and that is in the hour, but the hour in John is the passion. It is his crucifixion. That is the hour of judgment on this world, the hour when the ruler of darkness is cast out, the hour when the Father glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father, the hour when the dead hear the Son of Man's voice and rise. It is Christ's passion that reveals truly and completely that he is the living water that we only take in through his death, through his giving his life for us and to us, to be received in prayer in baptism, in the Eucharist above all, that we remain continuously bound to him, not through the rules we set down or the categories or even the dogmas we come up with, but through that encounter, which is always humbling, which is always frightening, which is always revealing, and which is always more than we could have expected and more than we could have hoped for may we all continue in that encounter with the risen Lord this week as we continue in the great feast of Pascha. Christ is risen.